This time loop thing. How did you get out of it? Oh, I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. And you came back of your own accord? Well, I... Doctor? No. No, I'm afraid not. No, obviously the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. Welcome to Galactic Yo-Yo, the podcast by Doctor Who fans share their unpopular opinions of the world, and I have to do with them. I'm your host, Molly Marsh, and I'm coming to you on a sunny but cold day. Um, I, I, I've not actually been outside yet, but I can tell it's cold because I'm looking at some people outside. I'm seeing a woman in a, in a gilet. I'm seeing a, a girl in a, a denim jacket with, uh, with a, a fur lining. So I know that it's a little bit. Oh, I see a man in a parka over there. So, so I know it's a little bit, a uh, little bit colder, but it is still sunny. So that's good. Um, this week on the podcast, I spoke to Nicholas Moore over in uh, New York, um, continuing my current trend of uh, speaking to people in the states um, each week. It took a little while to to get going with uh, with Nicholas because we had some technical problems that I falsely believed were issues with his. Uh, equipment and were actually issues with mine, um, which uh, made me look a bit silly. But it's all right; we we all got over it. Um, I did have the weirdest technical te- technical hitch um, ever on Galactic Yo-Yo, though, that which I, I tweeted about. You may have seen, uh, in that um, the boy does nothing by Alicia Dixon um, kept playing out of my computer. I wasn't sure what was going on. It turned out that my um, the RCA cable that I use um, to record the podcast with um, was triggering uh the itunes for some reason um please don't ask me why i've got that song in my itunes um i think i'm in a weird mood today i don't know whether you guys can tell um i've had a a few days um annual leave from work but i've not really had any specific plans so it's made me go a little bit crazy um anyway i'm going to stop chatting now and let you enjoy the podcast so without any further ado here is my conversation with nicholas moore So, yeah, um, actually, this, I think, okay, so I'm just going to start with coming into this show, because that's something that I remember distinctly, and keep in mind, I've, this is 2010, this is Series 5. Oh, I haven't introduced you yet, Nicholas, I've been very rude. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, Yeah, that's me. No, yeah, so yeah, I'm here with Nicholas Moore, um, YouTuber, critic um general doctor who enthusiast um and we're going to talk about some stuff um yeah sorry you were saying nicholas you 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 were so familiar with the format of galaxy that you just launched into it without me even (laughs) having to ask you the questions um which i which i love i should just sit back and let you do the whole thing um no go ahead oh god like i was worried about that because i know that we have like a time limit and and part of the reason that i was kind of 
uh, Jonesen to get this going is that I, I have a problem where if I know that something's coming, I'll just take notes forever. <laughs> so if we put this off for another week, I'd have had another hour's worth of notes of things to say, probably. I think it's but, better um, to be unprepared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like, we'll get into this and, like, how I, uh, on my channel, I do, like, regular Doctor Who discussions with my friends. And I'm the only one of us who takes notes. I'm like, I can't stop myself. I can't. I have a problem. I like that. I always find it encouraging when people come to the to the podcast with notes. I've had it a few times where I can hear pages turning on the other end of the line. Uh, yeah, so I really I really like that. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I want to know first of all before before we go back and do the um, and do the how you got into Doctor Who stuff because I, I I think that'll be actually be a useful segue into your unpopular opinion. I really want to start with talking about the content that you make online and. And the, the the criticism and the and the YouTube videos that that, that you're doing and, and what what that's all about. Okay, yeah. Well, that actually has like its own sort of origin story, and that I can actually trace back to 2013, and a suggestion by my dad that I kind of like start a blog where I talk about movies and Doctor Who, and so I remember this conversation because we were walking out of having seen Pacific Rim in theaters. If you've ever seen that movie, I've never seen it, but I do know it exists. It's it's really neat. It's it's such a fun, just like really earnest monster movie. But uh, we come out of that movie and my dad is like, you know, you like watching review critics on YouTube and you like reading review blogs. Why don't you just make one? And I was like, yeah, I should probably do that. And this was in the lead up to the uh, Day of the Doctor, the 50th. And so I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do like a couple... Uh, written blog reviews of Doctor Who stories that I like leading up to the 50th and then do that one. And for a while I did that, but then I realized that like written reviews wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to do. And so I started a YouTube channel that was a couple years earlier, 2015. I'd started with a couple of Doctor Who videos, a couple of Star Wars videos. Uh, I remember I did a video about the Sherlock Christmas special when that dropped and I did not care for that, unfortunately. But um, I want to say it's through Facebook that I met my friends, Lucy and Edward, and uh, we kind of slowly created our own little social circle of people who are really into Doctor Who. And we decided, hey, let's just do a thing where we talk about this show together. And so intermixed with what I hope will eventually become more frequent, like written video essay type stuff about Doctor Who. We've been doing our own kind of podcast like this where we've been going through the modern series. This is series. the Doctor Who Deluge, right? Yes. And, and you've also um, got Torchwood Deluge. Oh, yeah. And uh, we actually just yesterday, we finished up our discussion about uh, Children of Earth. And that came out to about like nearly two hours talking about uh, day four and day five of Children of Earth. So... I, I pity Lucy because Lucy is the one who uh, edits them down. I was going to say how much how much editing do you do afterwards? Because it really varies with Galactic Yo-Yo. Mm, yeah, I imagine based on like who you have and like how far the discussion goes. For sure. But yeah, for the discussions, Lucy is the one who edits them because she's the one who hosts them. So she takes out all of the fluff. And uh, for the video essays, those are all like visually edited and mm. the audio is edited and recorded by me. I feel so bad because I wanted what I wanted to happen is that I would have this uh, video essay that I was doing about how I think Demons of the Punjab is like a perfect story 
And I was going to have that ready to like drop around the time that this discussion would drop. But something has like kind of come up and I've had to put off the, uh, the release of that video for a little while. So I'm going to have to come up with another probably shorter Doctor Who thing. It's like a neat tie-in. I'm sure I'll come up with something. That's but, uh, okay. Yeah, been... I think I think when you're a smaller creator like like you and I are, I think it's important not to put too much pressure on yourself. I've said this on the podcast before. You know, if you're a bigger creator and and you you maybe make some money from your work and mm. you know that you there's more of that kind of financial investment you've got a larger audience, then I understand the need to stick to a release schedule and um be a little bit more committed with your content, but I think when you're at our level, you know, making making stuff for a few hundred or maybe a couple of thousand people, I think it's important to actually say, you know what, I'm going to do this when it's fun and not do it when it's not fun. And I'm not going to put too much pressure on myself to release it at the same time every week and every single week. And do you know what I mean? I think actually... If I yeah, yeah I if I tried mean. to be too strict with myself, I'd never make this at all because I'd end up failing. So I think, yeah, it's 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 good to be a bit kinder to yourself with that with that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. It's also just a degree of I know that consistency is part of getting a bigger audience mm. and beyond. Like... I was just gonna say that is the flip side of it, isn't it? The curse of it that is that maybe that that bigger audience will never come if you don't have that consistency. So. Yeah. But then, like, part of that is I've also, this is just a common sort of knowledge thing among creators, is that that also applies to consistency of content. And part of the issue is also that I'm not just the Doctor Who channel. I kind of just talk about whatever comes to mind. And so it it, it's, it, it kind of sucks because I have now three videos, including the Demons of the Punjab one, that are all pretty lengthy by my standards. And all of them have kind of a hold put on them at the moment. So that's unfortunate. But I'm, I'm sure I'll come up with something. It'll be fine. What but do you that, think yeah. you're going to do long term with it? Do you think it's gonna you're going to end up being a sort of general cultist uh, YouTube channel? Or do you think you're going you're gonna to more narrowly head down that Doctor Who route? Because there's a good argument for both, right? Because the if you look at other stuff as well, then mm. you're reaching a wider audience potentially. But if you... If you look at just Doctor Who or just one specific thing, then you've then you've got a niche. So yeah, yeah, there's a there's a uh, there's a double edged sword there as well. And I feel like I might end up falling into that a little bit because the thing is, uh, my two main interests that sort of come through in the channel are Doctor Who and superhero movies. And I have a friend Malik who I do most of the superhero content with. The way I think about it is. I do the superhero stuff with Malik or I do the Doctor Who stuff with Lucy and sort of our uh, group of friends who have slowly, like the people, the group that we do the Doctor Who podcast with has slowly increased with time to where it used to be three of us and now it's kind of like five or six or seven depending on the day. But the superhero stuff, just because so much of that has been impacted by like lockdown and COVID and just yesterday we got a bunch of news about like major blockbuster releases from Marvel and stuff getting pushed back upwards of six months. I feel like if I'm not going to talk about just superhero TV shows, I might undu- I might un- end up just having a lot of time to dedicate to Doctor Who just because there's not going to be a lot of new content 
superhero wise to talk about so i might end up yeah. falling into that not not that it's regardless. likely that we're gonna get doctor who again <laughs> that's you know. true but with doctor who there's like a, a backlog of that's stuff true that I yeah that's also true about. Yeah. yeah yeah you're never that's that's what people always say to me you know people who aren't doctor who fans they say wait so you make a doctor who podcast like even in the parts of the year where the show isn't on and i'm like yeah there's so much to mm-hmm. talk about like there's such a wealth of content to discuss I could, make, like, you know, they of... could cancel Doctor Who, and I could carry on making this podcast forever. Yeah, and like I have that because the thing is, I want to have that with stuff that has a backlog, but also that I don't have to worry about ending anytime soon. Yeah, because uh, another one of my favorite shows, like I say, Doctor Who is probably my favorite TV show of all time. Tied with that is just a bunch of animated shows, and so my top four television shows of all time is probably Doctor Who, Avatar The Last Airbender, Steven Universe, and Bojack Horseman. And I always feel this kind of guilt, particularly with Steven Universe, because I had so much to say about that show. But by the time that I got to making videos on it, it was pretty much over. And I feel like I kind of missed that ship and like let it sail. And so that's something that kind of sticks with me. It's like my one big YouTube regret not talking more about steven universe while it was ongoing so doctor who was the thing where like there's this huge backlog of stuff and like we're gonna get into in the main topic episodes that i want a lot of the episodes i'm gonna bring up in regards to our discussion are episodes that i just want to make singular videos about and that's stuff that i can do and not worry about ever like this show being done and like in the back mirror as it were yeah, and Doctor Who fans are weirdly kind of not fickle, aren't they? In the sense that Doctor Who fans are just perpetually interested in in all Doctor Who content. They're not, you know, I feel like maybe superhero fans and fans of other stuff want to know about the specific thing that that is being released now. Whereas Doctor yeah, Who fans, true. I think, they'll just watch any. You know, I I would maybe watch a a, a YouTube video about a, a David Tennant story one day, then I might watch a. Uh, listen to a podcast about a, a classic story. It it really mm-hmm. doesn't matter to me, and I think a lot of Doctor Who fans are like that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being ignorant, and maybe maybe other fans are like that too. But I don't no, know, I don't know that I I've think, seen it to the same extent. I think that's an interesting thing because it's 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 that kind of thing that you have to remember in terms of just fandom in general, where there are people who we consider the fandom who are like the inner circle, pretty much. And there are people who are still nominally fans, but they're way more layman. Like, I forget what the discussion, uh, was it with Rob Shearman, where you mentioned, like, Stephen Moffat in that one interview he gave for, like, most Doctor Who fans probably don't know who I yeah, am. Yeah, Where it's like, there are people who I think, think of Doctor Who primarily as the modern series, and that was kind of the gateway for them, and they're the people who are more... It, like, it was the gateway, and they went into the classic stuff, and they went into the big finish. But then there are people who kind of just started in 2005 or started at some point in the modern series and have stuck with that. And that's a large, like, very non-vocal, like, not always online. Yeah, it's a silent people. majority, isn't it? Yeah. And but... so, like, for those people, I imagine if they bother with, like, YouTube stuff, because I know that sort of the sphere that encompasses people who consume YouTube content is probably bigger than the sphere of just people who watch Doctor Who casually. They might stick mainly with content about the modern series. Who knows? 
Yeah, and, and then there's also a third group of people who are the people who just maybe tune in every now and again. Do you know what I mean? Who's yeah. not even necessarily stuck with the show, but they might have watched a, a full season here or there or a couple of episodes every season and, and are interested in it, but in a very, very casual way. Yeah, and like that that phenomena ties into the kind of thing I want to talk about just in terms of not to get into that yet, but in terms of what makes Doctor Who great in a lot of ways for me is that ease of accessibility for sure and the fact that you can come into most episodes not all episodes there there are quite a few that are not that are a little insular and for the fans specifically but there are a lot of episodes you can just tune in at random and just get into it and like i suppose now that's as good a transition as any into like what will later be our other transition which is me coming into the show well, yeah, because... I thought that would be a fantastic uh, and very seamless segue to talk about you yeah. getting into the show, and then and then maybe we could launch into that discussion about how others get into the show or the the ideal conditions for people getting into the show. So, I guess yeah, yeah. let's start with what happened with you getting into the show, Nicholas. For me, I get into Doctor Who like ten years ago, and I think I want to say it's the first airing of Flesh and Stone on BBC A. So I'm just scrolling through channels, and like the, I'm ignorant to the extent that and I don't know so, if Doctor... Sorry to interrupt you. How big a profile, really, does BBC America have over in the US? Um, is, it a, is it a thing people watch, or not really? I don't know. Like, here's the thing, because all my friends who do the, uh, the Doctor Who podcast with me, uh, Lucy and Edward, who are like the trio that we started with, are both American... Uh, Brian, who is on there now, is Canadian. But like we've got a we've got a wide mix. But the majority of us are Americans. But the people who I know, like in person, because we're all kind of split among different locations. I live in New York. The people who I know, like face to face, that I get to spend regular amounts of like physical time with, or at least I did pre-COVID, mm-hmm. don't really know it by cable, like BBCA. But I can't say that my personal experience really reflects how big it is just because like so many Americans are into this show. Sure. So, like sure. that has to be part of it. It has to be. And, it has to be. And and I guess streaming now too. Yes, that's but yes, true. Sorry. I've derailed it. You would, you would, you would flicking through channels. You land on. The yeah. Screen. And I'm, I'm like, this is appropriate because like the timing of it, I think is fitting for me because it's 2010 and series five. And, like, part of my thesis is that, like, Series 5 is ridiculously newcomer-friendly, and that's really when the show, like, pops off internationally. For sure, yeah. Like, like leaving Series 5 going into Series 6 is when Doctor Who becomes, like, a worldwide phenomenon. Which is and really like funny, because here in the UK, that if you ask people my age who, who aren't massive Doctor Who fans, they'll tell you that that was kind of the beginning of the end for their relationship with the show you know they'll talk about yeah. the start of matt smith as where the where the you know the decline began whereas and i feel like in part the of us that is... i think it's the i think that's where things really started to yeah to kick off as you say yeah like part of that is obviously going into series six we have like Moffat making a real effort to make every episode like a blockbuster in his own words. Yeah. Going to different more international locations, filming on location, stuff like that. But also, it's just a matter of 
how much of a hard shift and almost like an entirely new show Series 5 is, where I come in, I imagine a lot of people had what I had in America, where we see this show like Doctor Who, and I'm like, I've heard this show come up a lot, but I don't really know, I have like zero clue what it is. Like, I don't know Doctor Who from Dr. Phil. Like, I don't know, is this like a talk show type thing? Sure. So, but I've heard it come up enough times where I'm like, this is the thing that people know and talk about. I'll give it a shot. And I come in on the scene in Flesh and Stone where, like, with zero context, I, I start with the doctor realizing that Amy has, like, an angel in her mind and, like, him yes. piecing that together yeah. and, like, going on this, like, long, very quick, quickly delivered, like, rant about it. And, like, immediately I'm hooked just on the virtue of Matt Smith's performance and, like, in his what very is... first performance in Doctor Who as well. The first, first really first story he filmed, Time of Angels, Flesh and Stone. I feel like I heard that and then forgot about that. Wow, wow that's that's perfect. He's one of and those that... doctors who, you know, you look at some doctors um, like uh, Whitaker and even Capaldi and, and Tennant to an extent, and they, they grow, don't they? And they, uh, over the course of a season or two, become the doctor that we know and love. Smith yeah, just I is, a, feel... is he's a full package immediately yeah like honestly i feel even more so with tenet and capaldi than whitaker because i've been going through a series because uh i suppose i should mention for the podcast that we're doing it's still ongoing we are just now finishing up the tenant era like we've got the end of time to talk about on like friday and then we're done fantastic but but yeah so having tenant be a doctor that i've been experiencing for a while and like tracking his arc it's very clear that uh, his character wasn't fully solidified in his first series. Same with Capaldi. But like with Matt Smith, the instant he shows up, it's like he knows exactly what he's doing. And part of that, I also think, is just the quality of the scripts of Series 5. Definitely. Because to, to this day, that's still my favorite series. And Matt is still my favorite Doctor, even if I think the quality of the writing kind of fell off a little bit after series five and kind of gradually declined until he left. But that's like a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm. But so like watching that scene, I'm just like, what, who, what is this cast? What are they doing here? What is the context for any of this? This looks like so strange. And like this guy and his performance, and this looks like a character that I could fall in love with immediately. And, um, I know that you mentioned on, I forget what discussion it was, but that you like to ask, like, American fans if the kind of quintessential Britishness yes. of the show... Yeah, I've asked that a lot them. lately, because I've, I've, I'm on a bit of a spree of talking to Americans. Yeah, like, that really struck me, where it's like, the Doctor as a character is not the kind of archetype that you see a lot in American fiction, or at least wasn't at the time. It was like, He's just this kind of, like, weirdly dressed but sharply dressed at the same time guy who's, like, an intellectual, uses his mind to solve his problems, is constantly thinking, and, like, also constantly, like, emotional. It's it's this really interesting character archetype, and, like, the Doctor has become my favorite fictional character of all time. And, like, immediately there's that spark there. Like, there's no hesitation. And so, yeah, I feel like... And my sister, uh, my younger sister who uh, sometimes shows up on the podcast, she mentioned just last night that if she thinks back, she started with Vampires of Venice. So, like, 
the next one. Yeah. So, and like immediately I get into that. So what happens is I watch Flesh and Stone. I jump back to 11th hour and then I catch up. And so I watch up to uh, the Big Bang pretty much as everyone else does. Then in the wait between series five and six, I just go back and watch series one through four. And I bring my sister along and I bring my mom along. My mom, who is like the hugest David Tennant fan, like she will take any opportunity to gush about David Tennant. But uh, yeah, and so like from there on, I just keep up with everyone else. And it's it's just uh, the nostalgia that I have for series five and like the thankfulness that I have that I came on when I did. It's just so good. It's such a good season, and yeah, like such a good introduction to the to the show. Even though it's even though it's kind of um, quite convoluted plot wise in places, uh, and and it's got the sort of the the most complex season arc the show had uh, tried to tackle so far. It's all kind of internal complexity. It's its whole mythology is contained within that season. So it's not as if you've got to understand anything from. Uh, seasons one to four or from the classic show to understand the mythology of of series five really yeah and like i think because i think so much of that series even in and of itself works apart from the whole where like i said it has doctor who has kind of the star trek thing of like sometimes it can be very serialized but i think it's at its best when again to sort of paraphrase moffat when the premise of an episode could be the premise of a feature film. Sure. And part of that is being able to function as a piece in and of itself. So like a lot of series five works like that. I remember being in high school and like for reasons that I won't get into, we had a forensics class where the teacher wasn't there for the majority of the school year. So we basically spent a lot of time just mucking around on Netflix this was back when Doctor Who was on American Netflix. And uh, I put on Amy's Choice as kind of like the introductory episode for my forensics class. And they all got into it. It's like so much of Series 5 is just take an episode, just put it on. And like it'll capture the appeal of the show, I think. Definitely. And yeah, that was that was kind of the conclusion that I was preparing to come to at the end of your Unpopular Opinion discussion. So maybe let's start with... Yeah, your your kind of thesis for your unpopular opinion, yeah. Nicholas. Yeah. So, like, the, the, the hot take that we're going to frame this through, I suppose, is that uh, the two episodes that people, particularly modern series fans, always decide to start people off on to this show as newcomers are always either Rose or Blink. And I think those are two of probably the worst episodes that you could pick to do that. Or at least I'll say that for Blink. Rose. I was going to say, I kind of agree about Blink. I'm not so sure I agree entirely about Rose. Um, With Rose, it's just a matter of just how admittedly dated Series 5 is. I had this very conversation with um, Nathaniel Wayne, Council of Geeks, last week, and they were saying a a similar thing about Rose. And yeah, maybe I do look at it through, and no pun intended here, Rose tinted spectacles a little bit. Purely because maybe maybe it is that British thing again, where I you know I remember growing up in two thousand and five. I remember the world that that episode was was airing in. Um, so I yeah, so I, I may be a little bit more sympathetic to it. But I, yeah, I want to hear, I want to hear first of all why you think they're they're bad introductions to the show, and I also want to hear 
which stories maybe you think are better introductions to the show and why? Oh, well, that's great because, like, I have a whole list, but I have, like, in particular two more anecdotes about, like, people who I brought into the show. But uh, for Rose, Rose, it really is just kind of the stylistic of the times thing. Mm -hmm. Because, and, like, in preparation for this conversation, I rewatched a lot of the episodes that I'm going to talk about. And I just rewatched Rose last night. And I feel like part of it is just the 2005 of it all. It's. And in part and parcel with that, it's an unfortunate thing of like for two for series one and parts of series two, you can feel like the production and the actors still kind of getting into the groove of it. And I feel like Eccleston and Billy Piper, they get into their groove by the end of that series, and there's a lot of great stuff in series one. But with Rose, you kind of get the sense that the people working on this show don't quite know what it's going to be. I, I feel the same way about it. There's there's a few moments in in Rose, and actually in that in that whole first production block with Aliens of London as well, mm -hmm. that feel like the show's not really sure how much of a kid show it's trying to be. Do you know yeah. what I mean? But I'm thinking yeah. about the. I really like the farting Slavine, but um, I, that's one of the moments I'm thinking of. Also, all the stuff with um, Orton Mickey really really yeah. sticks out at me as well it's yeah it's, it's almost as if the show's like wait is this for is this are we aiming this at children are we not how camp is this how ridiculous is this how larger than life is this and it's it's really not sure yet yeah and it's it's it really just feels like they don't know the kind of animal that they're working with yet and that's natural it's the first production block it's the first story that's bound to happen but in a show like this where there are so many other viable jumping on points, I feel like the ones where, like, obviously Moffat and Chibnall and Russell, when they later try to do that, they have the blueprint set already. They have an idea of the kind of show that they want, and by the time that that's done, it's because of Rose and that experimentation that they got to that place. And, like, Blink, and, well, like, remind me to put a pin in the fact that Rose... Like, Series 1 and Series 2 both kind of being like that is the reason that Series 2 doesn't have really a jumping-on point to start with. But um, yeah, for I Blink, yeah, it's it's this weird kind of pattern. I suppose I'll talk about this now before I talk about Blink. It's this weird kind of pattern where uh, the Doctors kind of alternate behind between whose first episode makes for a good jumping-on point. <laughs> like, Rose, Rose is a good one. Christmas Invasion is not. The 11th hour is a good one. Deep breath really it, isn't. Is that not to do with the fact a little bit that um, that's the pattern of whether there's a new showrunner or not? Oh, yeah, that's that's probably true. Because, yeah, yeah Capaldi, it's, you know, it's still Moffat um, hanging on from Smith. And, and then with Whitaker again, it's a new it's a new showrunner. I suppose with Russell, it, it's diff a bit different with Rose because of all the stuff you were saying about the show finding the show overall finding its feet, but I I I think there's definitely yeah. with the later doctors a pattern there of okay, That's well you can rely on this to be a good jumping on point if you've got a whole new behind the scenes production team as well. Yeah, and like it's interesting because um, I'll go into it in more detail when I like get into them, but I think within different showrunners eras that's also true because where I'd argue the show really finds its feet and kind of becomes itself fully is series three 
And I think Smith and Jones is a great jumping on episode. Yeah, and, I'd, I'd uh, agree. I'd agree. And like Capaldi uh, with Clara is very kind of insular and playing to people who have already been watching. But the pilot is very intentionally designed to be like a pilot and functions like that. That's definitely true. I totally agree. But like for Blink, just before we get too deep into that, uh, Blink is this weird thing where I understand why people would want to do it. Because being a Dr. Light episode, if there are people who you are worried like won't take immediately to the premise and you want to kind of drip feed them the idea of the show and the Doctor's character, Blink is a good self-contained story that you could say yeah, transition I mean, into that. There's also the fact that it's one of Doctor Who's best stories. So I can see why people would want would say it's a good uh, jumping on point for that reason because well you want to start with something good, right? And it's one of Doctor Who's yeah, one of Doctor Who's best stories. Yeah, like I like Blink a lot. It's not it probably wouldn't crack my top 10 favorites, but if I do agree that it's definitely a story of quality and so you want a best foot forward this exactly, is a yeah. really good like piece of television just to start out with. But I feel like what I think the best jumping on stories should do is that they should really well convey the kind of show this is. And which, you should which, leave yeah, the... which Blink absolutely doesn't do. Yeah, and you should leave the story with a really good sense of the Doctor's character and like the Doctor companion dynamic that you're going to be following. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think you bit... sort of get a sense of the Doctor's character in Blink. I definitely don't think you get a sense of the, the Doctor companion dynamic at all. Yeah, I no, always Martha forget that Martha's like... in that story. <laughs> yeah, uh, genuinely, like literally, she just pops her head in occasionally. Yeah, but um, yeah, and Blink is just a case of because the thing is, if I show somebody Rose or Smith and Jones or the 11th hour, even the woman who fell to earth and they like it, then I'm like, good, you're going to like Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. If I show someone Blink and they like it, I can't be sure that that means they're going to like the rest of this show. That's so true. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. I think it's a good, yeah, it's a good episode to stick on if you're not, um, if you're not trying to get someone into Doctor Who and you just want to show them something good. But I'd say, yeah, yeah as, a, as a way of saying, okay, this is what, as a mission statement for Doctor Who, it's, it's, yeah, mission yeah, it's statement. not great. That's a good thing put it yeah it's, it's, like, it doesn't function well as one of those and and it's into because like i don't want to make it seem like the jumping on points just have to be the start of each series or the start of a series because uh like i said my sister got into it with vampires of venice and thinking on that episode that's great because the way that i think about it is can i show you this episode with the bare minimum context. Mm-hmm. Like, if I if I just have to explain to you, this is a show about a time-traveling alien, and sometimes he brings friends on adventures, go. And then you get the story, that's, that's a that's kind a of example. Well, well yeah, I think that, um, I think that uh, Vampires of Venice was, was designed um, to, to work that way, actually. I think in, in those first few seasons, you always get an episode around the episode five or six mark that, that is kind of designed for that. Yeah, because uh, all of the outside context that you need to get, like, the conflict of that story is in the first scene where uh, the Doctor pops out of the cake at Roy's stag party, and he's like, we need to talk about your fiancé. <laughs> she tried to kiss me. Immediately, that sets 
the dynamic it sets up the yeah the tension between those characters. I love that scene. I love it when she's when he says, um, "There's a there's a girl waiting outside. She needs a coat." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely girl, lovely girl diabetic. diabetic. I love that. Yes. Yeah. And then, like immediately after the uh, the opening sequence, we're in the TARDIS and we have like the Doctor attempting to explain it to Rory, but Rory's already read up on it, and he's like, "This is something that happened in the recent past." These characters already have a bit of a history. They're explaining how the TARDIS works, what it is, the fact that it's like dimensional engineering, stuff like that. And then that's really all the context you need for when they get to Venice and then they have an adventure and then they leave. And it's like, that's that's great. And it's not as if there isn't other stuff there in that story that is great if you do have a context for it. You know, there's so much great stuff in Vampires of Venice um, with Rory and the Doctor and Rory sort of holding the Doctor to account. I, those are the best bits of Vampires of Venice for me. And as a long-term <laughs> viewer, that's a really cool sort of existential deconstruction of the Doctor's character that you can appreciate, but you don't. it's not necessary reading. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. And like the kind of episodes where you can avoid as much necessary reading as possible are the ones where I would pick to start someone off i totally agree i totally agree and i suppose that's kind of true of blink though that does not need a a a great amount of necessary reading because we we see the story through the eyes of sally and larry right and they they kind of get to learn what doctor who is alongside us so i suppose that's one argument in favor of blink yeah i think that's like the argument in Mm. favor of which is like it's a great uh episode of television that you can just put on with zero context and people will get it. It's just still the thing of like, this isn't really the show that you think you're signing up for. If you not, enjoy this. Not really. No, no. Yeah. But um, to uh, my anecdotes and like my sister's in the other room and she's telling me to make sure that I mention this. And I'm like, I've got it in the notes. Don't worry about it. <laughs> where, where um for her birthday, I want to say 13th birthday. This was when she was like in the sixth grade. And she had, like, a dozen of her friends over at our house. And we're like, okay. Because pathologically, like, I think it's just a family trait that when we like a thing, the first thing we do is show it to people who are in our house. Like, you step inside our threshold, and you are, like, our captive to show you visual media, pretty much. And so we're like, okay, if everyone's here, then we are showing you Doctor Who. That's gonna happen. And so there's a bunch, and like they're barely paying attention. There are a bunch of sixth graders who are just bouncing all over the walls and just having the time of their lives. And then I put on uh, The Doctor Dances and The Empty Child and The Library Two Parter. So, of course, two Stephen Moffat stories. And I, for- I don't really recall their reaction to uh, The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances greatly. But when we put on the library episodes, like they are entranced and they're in it. And it's it's that great feeling, like you can feel it in the air of like, oh, I think I just made like a little legion of Doctor Who fans out of these guys. And like that feeling when the episode ends and it's River Song being like, uh, sweet dreams, the light flickers out and then the credits starts like, ah, oh, the, the, the chills that you could feel across the room. It was great. Yeah, that's so such like, a great story. And it's got that thing that you were talking about, about... um when you were talking about Flesh and Stone as well, it's got that same sort of magical sci-fi weirdness to it. It's it's that particular brand of, of yeah, Moffat Doctor Who that's that's like nothing else on television. Yes. Although I did also put on the, the pilot episode of Firefly, 
and they did also enjoy that a whole bunch. Well, I've heard that's very good. I've never seen Fly- Firefly, but I've heard that it's, uh, ah, it's excellent. You've got to watch Firefly. I know, I know. I know I've got to watch it's, Firefly. Yeah, people have been telling me It's not even a massive commitment. No, I know. It's like one season, right? Uh, yeah. Mm. It, and it's definitely movie, on the list. Yes, and you got to finish out with the movie, Serenity. So the movie comes after the series? Yes. Okay, cool. I'll, but, I'll put um, that on my list. Yeah, and like uh, to what I was talking about earlier, like I briefly mentioned, the transition from series five to series six, I find that kind of funny, just the way that things shake out to where series five was so newcomer friendly that I'm convinced it's the reason that so many people jumped onto the show at that point. Yeah. And then series six and most of series seven, like series seven for a while is really kind of inside baseball appealing to people who are already knee deep into the show as it were. Yeah. I think that's true of some things in series seven. I'd say definitely the, the Amy Rory stuff in the front half of series seven relies on you, <laughs> relies on you knowing a little bit about that dynamic I think obviously the the back end of the the very back end of the series with um with the name of the doctor and uh obviously eventually the lead into day of the doctor is obviously relies on a, a relationship with doctor who but I think everything in the middle is kind of concerned only with itself right well the thing I think is just because bells of saint john is kind of a new companion introduction Oh yeah, but all I, the, I mean, all I see, I see Bells of Saint John as a season opener, really. Yeah, but even then, all of the baggage with Clara having already been there and that's true. We, basic, we take that episode mostly through the Doctor's POV, so we're already supposed to be sort of like invested in what he's doing. I think Rings of Akaten that comes immediately afterward is a better sort of intro episode than Bells of Saint John. You're probably is, right. Yeah, 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 and so like. It's it's all these little episodes that are just scattered throughout the middle of certain series. Like, I think Vincent and the Doctor would be a great first watch. Uh, Fires of Pompeii comes to mind. Uh, someone, some I think, was it, was it Eden? Was it my sister who floated the idea that you could do human nature and family of blood and that could work? But again, is there, is there a, a sense with human nature and family of blood that it's it's kind of a similar situation to Blink in that this is not what you're getting week to week. Kind of. Just because unlike Blink, Human Nature and Family of Blood is so centered around, well, one, Martha. Like, Martha is a huge presence, so we've got the companion presence. And two, even though the Doctor as a character isn't present for most of it, it's very like reflective and thinking on his character. And that's kind of what I think would make it a really sort of interesting backwards choice is that maybe, but I I also sort of feel that it's kind of like the main emotional drive in that story is the audience wanting the doctor back. And then obviously the, the, how conflicted you feel at the end when, you know, you have to lose John Smith to get the doctor back. And I think maybe maybe for a new viewer, that would be totally alienating because for a new viewer doesn't, care about the doctor in the same way so it would be difficult for them to feel that draw towards wanting the doctor back 
I think that idea is actually what makes it really interesting is kind of like a bizarro backwards choice mm, mm. where normally yeah, maybe. Kind of it wouldn't be read in the same way. But yeah, it'd be, it'd be sort of interesting from an experimental point of view to show a non-fan that story. Yeah, to where if if you if they come into that just knowing John Smith, then they get to be endeared to John Smith. And the doctor is kind of this weird specter of like, I don't know how I feel about this guy. And that's a story that makes a big deal out of how kind of alien he is and how maybe human emotions and sort of relationships are a thing that he thinks about very differently. And then, of course, we end with the way that he handles the family of blood and it's very kind of cutthroat. And I think it would be interesting to see someone whose first exposure to the doctor is this more darker, uh, darker kind of, like you said, alienating view of their character. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about this person. Yeah, definitely. It would it'd be an interesting experiment for sure. I want to know yeah. what yeah, what other stories are on your list, um, Nicholas? Uh, I listed them off uh, that one, Vincent and the Doctor, Fires of Pompeii, Rings Back, and Time Heist. Is one that occurred time to heist. me. That's interesting. Why, yeah, why where, time heist? That's that's not a story that like conveys to you, uh, like the central premise. Like it doesn't tell you really what the TARDIS is. It doesn't entirely tell you that they go on like time space adventures regularly. But it's just a nice kind of like blink, like a lot of the other ones we talk about. It's a nice, very self-contained, easy to follow, yeah, like story. Yeah. That, that it does convey the Doctor and Clara's characters really well. And that's there's, true. There's yeah, really, that's true. There's like, like you said, there's really not too much outside reading that's necessary. That's another one where I could just say, this is a show about an alien, he's got a time and space machine, they go on adventures and put that on, and I think people would get it. I think my main point against that one would maybe be that it's just not that good. <laughs> oh man, no, I love Time Heist. Like, like so don't get me wrong, it's fine, but like, if you're trying to show somebody a, a a story to really get them to fall in love with Doctor Who, that's not the first one that I think of. It it's quite ordinary, really. Yeah, you know that's fair. And um, I don't hate it, but it's it, and and there's loads of good stuff in it. But I think, yeah, I think it's a solid six or seven out of ten story. And like, I suppose you can make the exact same argument for the woman who fell to Earth which I like more than most people I know. Uh-huh. But, like, that's another one that's designed with that purpose in mind. Yeah. But uh, what I think is so really What are you saying that the point against women, against, uh, against women who felt to worth is that it's it's not that good? Is that the, what you were saying there? Yeah, like, I like it a lot, but for most people it's more middling. Yeah. I think the thing with the woman who felt to worth is, and this is going to sound incredibly cynical, but the Chibnall era isn't very good, in my mind. So... If you're trying to get somebody into current Doctor Who, sort of, it, the woman who fell to Earth is just kind of the necessary route there. It's it's not as if you could really show them something better from the Chibnall era. I mean, there are better stories in the Chibnall era, but it's like, you may as well just stick on woman who fell to Earth. That's quite a bleak view of it, but do you know well, what I mean? Well, this is kind of interesting relative to the conversation that I had with uh, my roommate, who also appears in the podcast sometimes, where we were discussing... Do you just draft in people from your personal life to just be on the podcast? Well, yeah, everyone in my personal life loves Doctor Who. I so love yeah, that. But... I love that. But, like, um, yeah, like, for the Chimler as a whole, my other sort of smaller, unpopular opinion is just that I really like 
not just the Chibnall era, but like Chibnall as a writer. He's the thing about Chibnall is I don't think he's capable of writing stuff as good as Russell and Moffat did at their best, but he also has yet to write anything that I've disliked as much as they've made at their worst for me. Oh, I'm so gonna, I'm gonna Chibnall's... have to I'm gonna have to have to disagree with that one. I don't I don't yeah, know that I, I know. necessarily want to get into slating Chibnall too much. I'm going through a series eleven rewatch at the moment and finding it. I you know what I was really looking forward to going back and rewatching some of the series eleven stuff and series twelve stuff and and enjoying it more. And I'm really just not. And I don't know whether that's because I've got the wrong attitude to it and I should be looking for things to enjoy and instead I'm looking for things to to poke a stick at. Um yeah. But I Which I mean I, I'm not having a good time. I, I've got to be like honest. Like we've discussed, like the silent majority will never really know how they feel about it because they don't like have the impetus to talk about it. But as far as the people who populate like the fandom sphere, your opinion is definitely the more popular one. I kinda just stuck here at the me likey chibnall table by myself and it's fine i'm sure it's a it's lovely fun. table i'd love to be on that table i just can't bring myself to be yeah and it's like <laughs> I, it's it's just kind of baffling sometimes when people are like saranga conundrum is the worst doctor who episode ever made and i'm like i don't understand what you're talking about no, I, 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 li I literally watched it today it's not the worst doctor who episode ever made but it I guess what I would say about the Saranga conundrum is that if Doctor Who was like that every week, I wouldn't be a Doctor Who fan, you know? And yeah, and that... I think what I'd say in, in response to your thing about Chibnall's, Chibnall's worst stuff is not as bad as Moffat and Davies' worst stuff, what I'd say there is, well, yeah, Moffat and Davies have written some, have both written some bad stuff in that, in that time, but... I find Moffat and Davis's bad stuff infinitely more interesting than Chibnall's bad stuff. That's fair. Yeah, that's perfectly fair. It, and this actually, you know, it takes risks, risks that don't pay off. Mm. And this can actually, like, in a roundabout way, like tie back to the larger discussion because part of what I like about Chibnall is, like, distinct from the quality of the stories, just kind of his perception of the character and his take on the character which is something that i worried a little bit with russell and especially with moffat was kind of how self-reflexive the show was and yeah, how whereas that's my jam <laughs> yeah like i i think part of what contributed to the kind of i don't want to say it like it's an issue like it's a bad thing because other shows do this all the time but like just how inside baseball and how playing two people who were already fans like series six and seven were was that i think moffat and like also eight and nine uh because i'll talk about the pilot in just a minute but i think moffat has a real habit of getting very very insular and very self-reflexive with his writing to the point where for as much as i like moffat's stories like in 70 80 percent of the time too often even in his great stories i feel like moffat is kind of using the doctor less like a character and more like a mouthpiece for Stephen Moffat to talk about the show that is Doctor Who, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that to an extent. And like that can be really intellectually fascinating sometimes. Like I think Day of the Doctor does that in really interesting ways. But 
sometimes that can just be a little bit too much. And like, I kind of want to just watch the show and not necessarily someone writing about the show. And yeah, the I mean, reason- there's an extent to which uh, Chibnall's Doctor is somebody to be taken at face value. Chibnall's yeah, Doctor like- is more like is more like a, a superhero of old, where you just go, okay, this is an archetype, and we're watching this archetype wandering about doing stuff, which is which yeah. is something I find harder to appreciate and relate to. Um, but I can understand why other people would, you know, why that would appeal to people. Yeah, well, this is, again, this is a whole separate conversation. Like, I could go on for a while about Dr. 13 and all the little things about her that I find, like, easy to empathize with and relate to. But distinct from that, like, I was excited at the prospect of Chimnall being showrunner based solely off of The Power of Three. And that great moment in The Power of Three where it's the Dr. and Amy set on the roof and he's like... I love that. I love that scene. Yeah, and it's it's this moment of, like, I'm not running from things, I'm running to them, because the universe is just such a great, brilliant, beautiful place, and why would I not want to experience all of it as much as possible? And that, I think, carries through in Whitaker's Doctor. But even more so, it's just, like, Chibnall's Doctor, at their core, is an adventure scientist. Like, there's someone who loves to go out and experience new things, and is in love with science and scientific concepts because that's just the lens through which they experience the beauty of the universe and that's great and the doctor is always that and even under Russell and Moffat they're that but under the previous two showrunners I felt like that could sometimes get lost in the sea of the doctor is this kind of lonely god figure the doctor is this larger than life person who's got this like tragic backstory and is constantly sort of full of angst and like i kind of just like the idea of the doctor as someone who goes out because they just have so much that they want to experience and share with people i, de- I just... definitely sympathize with yeah with what you're saying there. I, I i guess what i'd say to counter that in terms of why i why i don't necessarily relate to chibnall's um imagining of the character is that well, firstly, at the, at the end, of, I'm not going to go into this too much, but at the end of series 12, obviously, Chris Chibnall invents his own um, psychological reasons for the Doctor to be doing what she's doing, um, which is is fine. It is what it is, but it kind of flies in the face of the whole the Doctor is an archetype and we need to accept her at face value approach. And secondly, I would say that He's some. I think if you just there's something quite dangerous about treating a character as okay, it is what it is. Like you, you, you kind of run out of imaginative stories to tell with that approach. Sometimes, even looking at like a scene in the the Saranga conundrum, which you've already talked about, and and which I've been watching today, there's that scene that some people for some reason enjoyed, where she's talking about the particle accelerator. In I that, like that scene in that room. I don't understand on any level people's enjoyment of that scene because what is what is that scene saying other than okay this is the doctor and this is what the doctor should be interested in it it seems to be appealing to yeah a group of people who want the doctor to be immutable and do you know what I mean I it's like why why are you why are you interested in the doctor talking about this science stuff it's, I I don't understand that 
I don't know. I just feel like this. Well, from one, I think Whitaker is just really good at conveying the enthusiasm. I think she performs it well. Don't be wrong. I think, yeah, I think she performs that scene very well. And I don't know. I just, I, I always get a kick out of scenes of like any doctor who finds something interesting and they just have to gush about it for a bit. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I'm not sure if like the immutability of it ties into it at all for me. Cause like, I don't think of that scene through that lens as like a sign of them being immutable. I just think of it as like, it's nice for when a character can grow and change and the doctor absolutely should do that. But there's also moments where we just have to cut back to the core of who this person is. And I think having a love of just the way that the universe works and like human ingenuity. I think that's true. And yeah. And I think that's fair enough in terms of like, at the overall characterization of the character, it's fair enough if, like, you know, Chibnall wants to strip the character back to its core in general, but it seems strange to then go for these moments that are highlighting kind of what the character is on a sort of um, spark notes level. Do you know what I mean? It's like, what um, what is that scene about the particle accelerator giving us other than, Oh, you oh you realize this is what the what kind of character the doctor is, right? Like, well, the way my, that I read it is, yeah. Well, and like not just that moment in a vacuum, but kind of ev- a lot of things that we do with thirteen is this is separating thirteen from the rest, in the sense that like my I have a whole take about how I think thirteen and her behavior is kind of exactly where the Doctor was bound to end up based on the arc of 9 through 12. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, it makes perfect sense to me that after all that they go through and all that sort of self-actualizing that they do, that by the time 12 regenerates, he becomes this person. I completely agree with that. And I think maybe that's the problem, is that where do you go from there? Once you've gone through all the self-actualization and self-reflection and you've gone, okay... I know who I am now. What there's no longer anything interesting about that to me. Well, okay, so it's, this it and feels this is, like a dead end to me. And this is part of I think again trying to tie it back to the larger thing. Not necessarily I wouldn't say Demons of the Punjab is a good jumping on episode, but part of why I think that's one of the episodes that can work kind of in a vacuum as like its own story is A lot of people don't think of that episode as being about the Doctor, but I think it is. And amongst everything else is where the Doctor, as much as Premier Yaz is very much the protagonist of that story. And like, even with all the self-actualization having been done, there are still stories to tell in the sense of this is a person who wants to exert some level of agency in certain situations, like Pompeii, like with uh, in India. But there are some situations where they kind of don't get that choice or they have to make like a terrible choice. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the, actually, the I think... you know, that you make a good point there because I'm thinking again about and it's only because I've just seen it today. But another moment from Saranga Conundrum right near the start where she's in she's on the ship and she's demanding. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, She's demanding that Astos just take her yes. back so she can get her TARDIS. And then Astos kind of says to her, well, we can't do that because there's loads of people depending on me uh, uh patients etc and she's going and at first she's arguing and then she suddenly has this realization that i love that yeah that like oh shit actually i am being a bit selfish here and although 
I'm kind of putting myself and my friends in the shitter by not going back for the TARDIS. I'm going to put more people in the shitter by demanding demanding that the ship turn around. And yeah. that moment actually, what I did find kind of thought provoking, because you never usually get to see the Doctor grappling with with um, you know, with moral moral dilemmas on on in such a pragmatic way. Yeah, and like and feelings and feeling so bummed out by it. Yeah. And also just like the doctor's ego has been such a definitive part of their character for so long. And to have them be like, you know, maybe I'm taking it a bit too far this time. Maybe I really do just have to accept that I'm not the center of the universe right now. Yeah. That's great. And like, just because um, I'm, I'm still thinking about demons of the Punjab and like someone made the obvious comparison to father's day. And I think it was, Again, the Robert Shearman discussion that you had where he liked that episode, but he had kind of a thing with it like, okay, why can't they change things? I think from a story perspective, that's just really interesting. And tell me if you've ever had this, where it seems sometimes with episodes like Fires of Pompeii and Waters of Mars and like the whole, the notion of the fixed point in time, Mm. that the show kind of picks and chooses when it wants to be a story where causality is the result of human choices or human choices are the result of causality oh definitely yeah there's no there's no um yeah it's got no manifesto about that definitely not. yeah and demons of the punjab is absolutely a story where if the doctor wanted to she could save prem's life but that would mean losing yaz so the story that story ultimately comes down to the doctor making a choice not to do something what does that say about them as a person yeah yeah and like I, I i think there's still absolutely plenty stories to tell with the character at the current stage that they're at i just think that maybe and this is like i know that we're going over time like we've been at this for a while but like no, my other big, my my other big like unpopular opinion hot take is that this show should abandon series arcs and, like, part of that is my preference of, like, if we're going to tell stories about the Doctor as a character, I'd prefer they be, like, stories that pertain to the premise of the given episode. Uh-huh. Like, again, the library two-parter, like, the introduction of River Song, you could never have River Song show up again, and the library two-parter is still a great story for the Doctor as a character. That's true, yeah. And just, like, stuff like that. And I just feel like, to varying degrees... Russell, Moffat, and Chibnall are all people who struggle to tell multi-episode, like, story arcs. Like, I think the best story arcs that the show has done to date are series three through five, where the Harold Saxon arc, regardless of how I feel about, like, the last 15 minutes of Last of the Time Lords and that being a whole big mess. I just love it. I'm sorry, I love it. (laughs) But, like, I feel like until those last moments, that's a really well-set-up arc that, like, weaves in and out of the self-contained stories in a natural way. The same with Series 4 and The Missing Planets. Yeah. To where it's, like, all of the shenanigans that Davos and the Daleks are getting up to is the inciting incident for at least three stories across that series. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to know that to enjoy those stories. And that's that's true. That's really well done. And with uh, Series 5... The TARDIS exploding, like the cracks through time, again, is like deeply impacting the self-contained stories, but not to a level where it's, like you said, required reading. That's the way that I'd like these things to be handled. 
and not yeah. so much the way that we follow into it too, uh, too often, which is what the later Moffat series do, where they get a little bit too into it, and where stories that would otherwise be self-contained are kind of like you kind of have to have required reading. Like, yeah, uh, I'm, the... I'm I'm really not sure where I stand on this because I think I think I definitely dispute your your opinion there about um, Moffat, Davies, and Chibnall all struggling to write full season stories. I think maybe maybe that's true in Doctor Who. Maybe. But I think Yeah, no, I'm I'm talking specifically about Doctor yeah. Who, just to be clear. Because I think but I think then maybe it, it's a, a larger discussion about the about where Doctor Who's going in the landscape of modern television. Because when you look at a show like Broadchurch, that's an ongoing story across th- three seasons pretty much that Chibnall mm-hmm. wrote. I've been watching Queer as Folk again lately. That's an ongoing story against a, 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 across a, a season and a couple of specials. You know that that for the Russell podcast we wrote. just got we just got done talking about Children of Earth and again. Right. Children of Earth, yeah. Also Russell and one story across five episodes. I think Stephen's a little bit different. I think he can do um, extended story arcs, but you've got to be patient with his. Um, you've got to have patience for his ridiculousness, which not all people do. Um, but I would say that all writers are maybe a little bit hesitant to go the full hog with Doctor Who and make it a fully serialised thing, as most shows are these days. You try and think of a show aside from Doctor Who that's not a comedy, that is doing um, uh, stories that are not related to a wider series arc. It just doesn't happen anymore. Everything is serialised. Yeah, like- so I think well again it's it's either a comedy or it's animation. Because yeah, animation or it's animation or it's a um it's a I'm trying to think of the word word for it now. Um anthology? Anthology show. Yeah, like Black Mirror or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um you you're not really getting continuing continuing dramas now that have a different story episode to episode. It doesn't happen. So I think if Doctor Who's going to be competitive in the modern market, it's the wise thing to do would be to go in the more serialized direction, but which is unfortunate the, because that's ra- not what I want. No, and I'd I think, and, and I don't think it's what I don't think it feels natural for writers either. I think Chibnall's yeah. dithering on it. Do you know what I mean? I think like, he could I'd probably rather... pull it off, but he's dithering in this weird space between between which doing a why... full series arc and, and and not, which is which feels uncomfortable to me. Which is why I am, like, in the weird minority that, one, prefers Series 11 to Series 12, and two, doesn't love Fugitive of the Jadoon, because that feels like it's a story, like, torn between arcs, to where Fugitive of the Jadoon, it's, again, it's like River Song in the Library. If we never saw Joe Martin's Doctor again, and we just had a story where it was, like, 13 meets this weird displaced version of herself and what does that say about her personal identity and like her self-perception yeah. and how to bounce off each other kind of like the way i think of fugitive of the uh, fugitive of the jadoon is what if you made the next doctor but in earnest and where there's like mm. no twist to it but like that that's that such stuff, a good I way of describing is, it <laughs> yeah like that stuff is gold and those parts of the episodes i think are gold but then we're torn from that to like foreshadow Captain Jack and like talk about the lone Cybermen. And that's not a lot of screen time, 
but it feels distracting to where it's like this other arc impeding on this otherwise relatively self-contained thing that should work on its own. I think, yeah, and I think as well, as much as we can romanticize about a a, a version of Fugitive of the Jadoon that was never followed up on, I, I think it would have felt disappointing to have never seen that Fugitive Doctor again. I think yeah, that's true. From, from what we... Firstly, because Joe Martin was just so brilliant and it would have been awful not to have seen her again and I still think it's going to be awful if we never see her again. But also because what we've grown to expect from Doctor Who is you drop a bombshell like that in the middle of the season, you bet it better have a payoff later in the season, you know? What I'd love if they do is, like, I forget the channel that did this, but some channel suggested, like, an idea for a Doctor Who series where we introduce two Doctors and we just kind of follow them both separately. That would be I'd love fantastic. it if series thir- I'd, yeah, I'd love it if series 13 or 14 was, like, we've got our Jody episodes and then like sprinkled in amongst those, we just have episodes where it's just Joe Martin. That would be great. Yeah. And I think, you know, the argument against it would be, it would be difficult for casual viewers to follow it. But I think actually in this day, that would and age, be another thing where like, but viewers hope... are used to that. They're, they're used to like things having to dip in and out of things, things having interlocking stories. You know, we're, we're talking about a general public who's, avidly watched all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe th- films. It's like yeah. people understand like appeal, this kind of storytelling now. The appeal of those uh, movies is also like when when the big continuity stuff comes up, it's either in big blowout, like quote unquote episodes, like Doctor Who has its Wedding of River Song or it has its Heaven Sent Hell Bent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel has its Infinity War and Endgame. And in amongst those, the majority of what you're going to watch is fairly self-contained stuff where the continuity references just kind of float in and out, and if you don't get them, they don't really matter. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'd rather... Personally, I'd rather that Doctor Who move... Like, if... I'd, I'd rather it either stay where it is or move in a more episodic direction to where it's basically an anthology show with one recurring character or one recurring main cast. But, like, I, I like where it's at now. Where, for the most part, if you put on an episode, you'll get it. And if there's a stray line of dialogue or a stray visual Mm. alluding to something else, then you can just Wikipedia that. Like, everyone has a computer in their hand now. That's, that's again, how the the modern TV landscape is different. Is that you can just look this stuff up and you can even just go and watch stuff that you've missed. Yeah, but I'd be really disappointed, I think, if we got to a point with Doctor Who where every series was like a Children of Earth type thing. I really don't want that. No, because I also think that that kills TV shows as well. You know, t- Children mm-hmm. of Earth, you know, however fantastic it was, and it was. It was, on, it, it was it, only the five episodes. Yeah, and it killed Torchwood, you know, because it, it kills, it blew up the format almost literally of Torchwood. And, and oh boy, once. Yeah, there's I, no I going back wait. from there. I should link you to the Children of Earth discussion I do when it goes up because, like, I have my feelings about how I think Children of Earth should have been the end. Like, that feels like it was designing itself to be the end of the story that Torchwood Series 1 started. And Miracle Day was a mistake, but that's a different discussion. I, yeah, I really don't think you're in a minority <laughs> with that belief. And I I don't dislike Miracle Day. It just doesn't feel like it was meant to happen. No. It no. feels like a different show. For sure. For sure. I definitely agree. Even having not seen all of Miracle Day, I, I definitely agree. And like just to, I suppose, round it out, just the reason that Doctor Who 
hopefully is able to avoid ever having that problem is that, like you say, it doesn't go fully in that direction. It mm. always opens itself up to at least a few episodes per series where anyone just scrolling through channels the way I was could come in and be like, what is this show? I For don't sure. get the full picture, but I've seen this episode and I like it. I want more. And I don't have to like scroll through notes of backstory to get to that place. Absolutely. I think if it was going to go down the anthology route, as you briefly touched on a moment ago, it, you'd have to do sort of you'd have to do the sort of Sherlock model of three or four ninety-minute episodes in in a season. Mm. You know, all-star casts, different locations and time periods each episode, and the Doctor shows up yeah. about fifteen minutes in on their own, no companion. So the Doctor is the only recurring thing across those three or four stories i think that would yeah, be that a would really maybe... interesting experimental way to do a season of doctor who it would maybe be a bit much because i i feel like the chimnal era has nailed down the like right amount of time at like 50 minutes to an hour yeah because going oh yeah it'd be a, a totally of... different way of telling a story for sure yeah like going through uh the davies and moffat era there are a lot of ones where i'm like oh man, this is a story that's so close to like being capital G great if it just had five more minutes to explore this thing. Definitely. And like, oh, oh man, I, I didn't even talk about because um, just my last thing that I want to say before I supposedly wrap up is that I've, like you've been rewatching series 11, I've been rewatching series 10 and uh, for the longest time, series 10 used to be my least favorite and I'm still partway through. It could still go either way because i remember disliking a lot of the back half but man did i undersell my first time watching that series how great not only how great of a first episode the pilot is but how great of a like opening trilogy the pilot smile and oh and yeah I saw it. oh yeah i feel like i, I look through all of the episodes like out of all 12 series so far i don't think any other episode has had as good of a three episode start as 10 has where then oh, ice is an episode so i mean i because, would like, say I, look... I would say series one but i know you don't agree <laughs> because like putting aside rose i don't love the unquiet dead i think end of the world is pretty good but like and like i've never been a mark gatiss fan so that's part of that that's fair enough but yeah like what I, about I series at... four though partners in crime pompeii and and planet of the youth that's a good little trilogy, no? It is. I think Fires of Pompeii is far and away better than the other two. I really like Planet of the Youth. It's really grown on me over the years. I like it, and like I like a lot of things in it. But like, but the way I think about it is, like the pilot, I think is just so good. And then there's a little bit of a dip with Smile, where again, that's another one that could have used five more minutes. Mm -hmm. And then, oh my then god, I the ending to that is so outrageously rushed. Yes, that's the main thing. Like, I love that story. I love how it's, like, pretty much a two-hander for 90% of it. Yeah. It's just the Doctor and Bill. But then the climax comes, and it's, like, I blinked, and it's over. Yep. And so, like, that holds that story back. But then Thin Ice is, like, something with... Thin Ice is, like, the next solo episode video that I'm going to do after Demons of the Punjab, because uh -huh. that's another one where I'm, like, that's a perfect Doctor Who episode for me. And it's like, ah, oh, I can't think of any other opening stretch that's, like, that strong. And I don't love Knock Knock, but, like, Oxygen is pretty great. And just 
series 10 is like so good and i think a lot of it is on the strength of that opening like this is bring if you want to bring someone new into the show with these three episodes it's a great mission statement it's a great mission statement like those three episodes together is a perfect doctor who mission statement i think i think that's a good place to wrap it up nicholas thank you so much for talking to me thank you for having me like yes no problem like um, where where can people find you on uh, Twitter and, and YouTube? Uh, my Twitter is just at uh, NicholasMore16. I made that when I was very young and didn't bother with branding. But uh, my YouTube channel is The Ponderer. Like, please check that out. And I'm working on some good stuff, hopefully. And there's a ton of Doctor Who stuff, like conversations very similar to this, if you're interested fantastic yeah do check that out folks uh it's really great stuff on nicholas's youtube channel um and you can find uh me on twitter at molly underscore martian you can find the podcast on twitter at galaxyoyopod and you can email me at galaxyoyopod at gmail.com um i think that's everything bye bye everybody bye <laughs>